Good morning again. Seems to be the theme today. Good mornings. Yes, lots of them. All right, so uh, that's right. We're going to go three weeks on Genesis chapter three. You're welcome. So, yes, uh, you know, I, I kind of feel like, you know, a little bit of, you know, maybe the last couple of weeks were a little bit of a downer. The last week certainly ended on a high note talking about God's love, certainly. But, you know, spending a couple of weeks talking about, first of all, you know, God's holiness, right? And his just punishment on his creation that, for whatever reason, decided to rebel against him, right? I mean, that was a heavy message. It was a message filled with a sense of, oh my gosh, fear and terror, right? In a sense, which I think is somewhat appropriate when we understand who God is, right? That's the point of that message, that God is holy, Like, who do we think we are that we can just rebel and reject him and not face any kind of consequences for that, right? And so they're just punishments. But then last week, again, diving into, you know, the the depth of sin, right? That, That we recognize or come to understand that we, everything we do, everything we think has been impacted by sin. That we have uh, been so influenced that we are totally depraved as a result of not just our own sin, but the sin, of course, of Adam that was then passed down to all of us. Uh, However, again, last week we talked about the love of God, which is more powerful than sin, which is our hope, obviously. So this week, as we come back to Genesis chapter 3 one more time, I, I hope to give a little bit more positive perspective Because what we don't sometimes recognize is that within both the judgment, the the just punishment for our sin, and even our sin itself, God has lined it with grace. And so, you know, we oftentimes can look at punishment as just being all bad, like there's nothing good in it, right? I mean, as a kid, you know, this is oftentimes our response to our parents when they punish us. That's not fair. That's crazy. What are you doing? You you can't do that. That's just so horrible. Come on, give me a break, dad, you know, kind of thing, right? And, And so we can just look at punishment as all bad, like nothing good in it. And sometimes we respond the same way to Jesus, right? And to God, like, what are you doing? Why is this all bad? I just, there's nothing good in this. I can't believe you're expecting me to live this way and I'm getting punished if I seem to somehow go out on my own, right? This is not fair, right? And so we can look at punishment as all just ugly and evil and bad, but God has lined punishment with grace, just like the parent. Once we grow up and have our own kids and we realize, no, 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 those punishments are not just about retribution, Those punishments aren't just because, hey, man, you didn't do what I said. Those punishments are actually a form of trying to develop in us a a, a thirst for righteousness and for good that is lined with grace. And that even our sins, even this fact that we are totally depraved and that because of one sin, that's all it takes, one sin, everything else is ruined. We can look at that as being not fair. We can look at that as being just all evil and ugliness. But God is again lined sin with grace, because it's when we come into understanding of the depth of our sin that we realize our need. We realize that we've got to find it somewhere else and not within ourselves. And so this morning I want to highlight 
the hints of grace in Genesis chapter 3 to highlight the fact that God is just not just someone who's up there trying to destroy our lives, that he's not just a wrathful God, but he's a loving God filled with grace and that his wrath is coming, certainly. And those who don't know Jesus, those who have rejected and continue to reject God, should fear, should tremble. But those who have chosen to give their life and surrender, to bow our knee to Jesus as Lord, that we can recognize and see that even his punishments and even our still continued struggle with sin is filled with grace. So let's read our passage one more time. <laughs> probably one more time. Maybe we'll go another week. I don't know. Probably not, though. <laughs> Genesis chapter 3 And I'll zero in just on 14, verse 14, and to the end. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So we start by looking at the punishments here that are uh, revealed to us in Genesis chapter 3. That these punishments, again, are not simply just retribution or revenge from God, but they are actually filled with grace. That we shouldn't be surprised, as I said earlier, that we as parents, you know, recognize that even our punishments, oftentimes from, to our kids, are, you know, filled with grace as well. But the punishments in the garden are definitely full of grace. Consider, first of all, the relationships. If you remember uh, uh, two weeks ago when I talked about the consequences of our sin, I highlighted three areas, relationships, death, and then sinful nature. So we'll look at those three now from from the perspective of grace. So first of all, relationships. Relationships, first of all, are filled with grace in the sense that right away, and I didn't read this this morning, but right away, what is Adam and Eve's response when they eat the fruit? They're aware 
of their separation from God. They're aware of the distance that all of a sudden now exists between them and their creator. And, and there's, there's, a, there's a grace in that to, to know that God pulls himself from us when we sin, sin. Because then we can recognize, wait a second, something is missing. We can recognize that somehow, some way, this isn't right. Like, I feel insecure. I feel like, I, where is my God? What is going on? Where is my connections? Where's my relationships? And so the fact that there's distance in relationship points to the fact that God is gracious to us in that because that distance helps us to recognize there's something wrong. But then also on the other side of this, there's the distance from God, but then there's this interconnectedness of humanity and man and his wife that Eve is given the, in a sense, the authority to bear children. And yet she wants to have this relationship, she wants to rule over her husband, but she recognizes that that's never going to happen because there's this struggle that's going on back and forth. In order for the woman to bear a child, she needs a husband. In order for a husband to bear a son, he needs a wife. And so there's this interconnectedness, even though there's this tension and there's this battle and this blame game going on, we see that God, no, he's drawing us together and saying, no, no, we need each other, which helps us to recognize. So the tension helps us to recognize that there's something better there. But I think especially in regards to relationship, we can see this amazing piece, the curse given to the, snake, to the serpent, that he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Of course, has been outlined many times by many pastors and scholars, this, this foreshadowing of the coming of our Savior, Jesus who would destroy the tempter, the deceiver, that he would be the one who destroys sin. Notice that it's in the singular that this verse is written, right? He. How many kids does Eve end up having, right? I mean, lots, right? And then you think about the generations and all these people. It's not, it's not a conglomerate. It's not all of humanity that crushes the head of the snake. It's he. It's the one who crushes the head of the snake. And so we can see through this relationship, through the tensions that are there and the feeling and the sense of separation, yet there's this hope that eventually, at some point, sin will be destroyed. And so we see grace in that. Next, the punishment of death. Again, oftentimes I think death is looked at as just bad, all bad. There's nothing good in it. And certainly we as human, humanity, we struggle against death. And we'll get into that a little bit more in a moment. But we are fighting against that constantly because it is the great enemy. So we think death is kind of the big deal. That's the thing that just is nothing good in it. It's just all bad. And God just needs to get rid of it and be done with it. But death is filled with grace. Think about it this way. First of all, it limits our suffering. Have you think about that? I mean, if we had to live forever in this world, in this fallen world, in this world filled with sin, in this world where there's pain and suffering, conflict, tension, can you imagine living here forever? Thank God for death. 
that our suffering is limited. But also, I think in death, we see a grace in the sense that it also limits our sinfulness. The amount of sin that we can do. That we only have so many years. Thank God that a guy like Hitler is not living forever. Thank God that the evil men and women of history don't live forever. But also, let's turn it personal. Thank God that I don't have to continue to wrestle with sin forever. That I don't have to continue to to deal with my own sinfulness. You see, death is actually an amazing grace to us. It is a punishment. And again, for those who don't recognize in the life that they have that Jesus is Lord and choose to bow to him, death certainly seems to be one of the greatest evils and is the greatest evil. But for those of us who come to that knowledge and choose to surrender, Death can be actually amazing grace. I would point out as well in regards to death, notice that Adam and Eve are not snuffed out immediately. Right? I mean, mean, why not? Right? If God is just giving the punishment of death to punish, because he's just ticked off and you guys screwed up and so you're just done, I mean, why not just kill him right now? Why wait? The fact that it's not immediate stirs actually hope in us. That wait a second, maybe there's, maybe there's a possibility that death won't be the end. That somehow I'll be able to escape the ultimate punishment here. And so we see amazing grace, I think, also in death. And then finally, the punishment of sinful nature. Again, sinful nature, this thing that we are born with, where we're born into sin, in sin. We, we continue to sin our whole life. Again, total depravity. We're totally depraved. There's nothing we can do that's good or that's right. And again, that is grace. Because that total depravity, that continual sin points to the fact that we can't do anything good. That there's no possible way that we can save ourselves. There's no possible way that, you know, if we just, you know, mount up enough good things in our life that somehow we'll be saved. Now, sinful nature reveals that we are indeed wicked. And there's no way we can save ourselves. It reveals our need as well. Once we recognize that we're wicked, then we recognize we need someone to save us. Someone, anyone out there that can save us. But also, and I kind of highlighted this a little bit last week, that it's actually our sin that reveals God's love. 
right? I mean, again, if Adam had never fallen, would he have fully understood God's love, the depth of God's love for him? It's because we have sinned. It's because we have rejected him. It's because we've tried to replace that love with other things that we are able to then see the true love of God, which again stirs hope in us. Hope that we can maybe somehow receive that love or at least long for that love and want to experience that love in some way. And so we see in these punishments, there is grace. The punishments are actually meant to draw us to Jesus. They're not just an arbitrary punishment that is just supposed to inflict pain. These punishments from God are actually meant to draw us to Jesus, to draw us back to God. It's a beautiful thing. And it should encourage us and fill us with hope. Now, there's also grace within sin. But in order to get there and help, I, I need to kind of... I need to kind of lead us into this direction for you to understand what I mean by that. And, uh, and so in order to do that, we need to take a step back in some sense and consider again the image of God, right? In Genesis chapter 1, 27, God says, let us make man in our image, male and female in our image, right? There's this idea that God has created us in the image of God. And so we need to remember that, and, and, but also to recognize that part of God's image that he has created us with is this idea that there he has set in us certain cravings that can only be satisfied in him. Uh, some has re have referred to it in the past as that God-sized hole in our heart, right? That the only thing that can fill that hole is Jesus Christ, well, this is kind of on that concept, but I've uh, labeled it more as internal cravings. Uh, God has created us with certain cravings in our heart that we will always want and seek to satisfy, but can only be satisfied in him. And so I've identified, I think, five internal cravings. Now, these are not, you know, necessarily, you know, scriptural in the sense of like, uh, you know, these have to be the five, right? The Bible clearly says. I think there's potentially more. And I think even some of these five, you might argue, ah, is that really in, in craving or whatever? But I have identified just these five things. And I think most of them you can, you can relate to. So the first one is life. God is created us with an internal craving for life, eternal life. You know, humanity is not okay with death. We, we all of us are fighting against it. Uh, and none of us want to die, right? I, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't want, I'm not ready to die. Are you ready to die? I'm not ready to die. I mean, heaven's a wonderful place, but I'm still not ready to die, right? I mean, we have this craving for life and eternal life, to always want to be alive. I mean, think about your mind. Have you ever thought about this? Our minds don't age. Bob, how old are you in your mind? 30, exactly, right? 18, who said 18? That's a horrible age. Why would you pick 18? <laughs> Maybe I'm just too close to 18 still, I don't know. But anyway, 
our minds, right? We, 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 we do dumb things with our bodies because our minds say, oh yeah, I can do that, right? I mean, how many of us guys or gals have gone out and tried to do, do something athletic? They were like, aha, boom, and we hit our face, you know, because we hurt something, right? We break something because, oh yeah, I can't do that anymore. I'm too old for that, right? My body is not, you know, 30 anymore or 18 anymore. And so, again, I think this is a sign of that internal craving that God has created in us. We are created to be eternal. And so death is something that we just do not accept. And so we battle against death our whole life. Second internal craving is love. We long to know that somebody loves us. The power that even just knowing one person loves us just as we are. It's, it's amazing where that comes from. I mean, the idea, that, the question that we can often ask, if, if I didn't exist, would anybody care? I think we as human beings have this internal craving that God has put there to be loved. And we will go to desperate measures to try to satisfy that craving. Justice. Justice is another internal craving, and I think we have, all of us have, uh, some of us more than others. My daughter was really high in the, that's not fair, right? I mean, she understood clearly what just was, right? What is just, what is not just, right? And she always made sure we knew what she thought. Um, but, but don't we all do that? I think there's this internal peace in us as human beings that when we see injustice, we're like, that's wrong. That, no, that's not right. And whether it be something that's against us or against someone else, we have this desire to make it right. No, we need to make this right. This, no, we can't just let it sit. We have a desire for justice and we'll fight for it. We naturally want evil to be punished. Yeah, interesting. The next, I think, internal craving that God gives us is mercy. It's not my fault. I mean, I really didn't mean to do it, really. Seriously, I didn't. I, I, it was just an accident. I don't know why I did that. I didn't, you know, right? Mer we want mercy. We want people to give us a break. We want that. Can we just tell you the, you know, this is why I did that, right? These are the excuses, right? I didn't, it's just not because I'm evil. I mean, give me a little bit of mercy. Give me a second chance, right? We want mercy. We, we recognize wait a second, there's something in us that is causing us to do things that we don't always choose, right? This sinful nature piece, right? It's like inherently we have this understanding. And so we, we crave mercy for people to just give us another chance. I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to do that really. And then the final one that at least I'm going to look into or that I think is on this list of internal cravings that God gives us is a craving for purpose. Why am I here? Have I made a difference? I think God has created us with a longing to leave a mark. To, to somehow like make a difference in this world, to somehow make, you know, and some people have grand ideas, maybe all of us do when we're younger, and then that, you know, grand ideas oftentimes get twiddled, you know, dwindled down to something a little bit smaller, but all of us have some idea of wanting to make some kind of mark, even if it's just with one individual, to leave a legacy of some sort, to have someone be able to remember us 
to be remembered for something. I think this is a God-given craving. All right, so five cravings, internal cravings that I think God has given us as part of being in the image, created in the image of God. Life, love, justice, mercy, and purpose. We are born with these cravings. But sin separates us from the one, the only one, who can fulfill those cravings, who can satisfy those cravings. So because we're separated from the one God who can satisfy, we as human beings are filled with fear. I have come to believe that just about every decision we humans make, Christian or non, is based on in fear. We're trying to feel secure. We're trying to deal with some craving that's unsatisfied. And we're fearful that that craving will never be satisfied. And so then we make a decision. It also is my belief that nearly every sin that we commit is actually based in an attempt to fulfill and satisfy these God-given cravings. Now, why is that an encouragement? I'll get there in a minute. But let's look at how we try to satisfy these cravings. And then what does scripture tell us about these cravings? First, our life. Our desire, our, again, for our craving for life and for it to last, we usually, as human beings, take it into our own hands. It's like, I'm going to make sure that this is satisfied. I'm going to live as long as I can. We refuse to follow and trust God. We refuse to look to him for our life. And so we seek power and, in, and control instead. We, we bully, we are competitive with everyone. We are trying to beat everybody down. You know, it's the idea that if we can just get enough power, this is the striving for power, right? If we just get enough power, then we can be in a position where we can control our surroundings and we can not have to worry about someone else taking our life, right? This is unfortunately the elitists in our world who tell us that we don't need police to protect ourselves, yet at the same time, they have their own police that they can surround themselves with. The, again, the idea is that they can, you know, get enough power so that they can be insulated and they can secure their world and their life, or power enough money so that they can afford all of the treatments, the best treatments, the best doctors, the best hospitals, so that if they do get sick, they can heal themselves. They can make sure they can get by that. So we have so many who bully and are competitive with others who are selfishly motivated in order to try to get power so that they can save their life. Even though they know, like, okay, death is inevitable, but like, how do I prolong it as long as possible? And so we see these sins of bullying and, and competition that goes, goes awry, selfishness, but also those that can't get that power, we see them begin to isolate and they can become self-destructive. This is part of the euthanasia movement. 
If I can't control when I'm going to die or how I'm going to die, like if I can't control that, well, how about I just determine what day I'm going to die? But what does the Bible tell us about life? Matthew 16, 25. It is those who give their life who will save it. Those who strive to save their life will lose it. But those who freely give their life to Jesus as Lord are those who are going to save their lives. Again, satisfied in God. Right? We, we can satisfy our craving for a long life by turning to Jesus. By surrendering our life, Romans 12, 1, right? Surrender our life, be a living sacrifice for Jesus. We live as though we are dead, even though we still are alive knowing that we will truly live when we get to eternity. We even see Jesus giving us an example of this as he gave his life freely. Luke 23, 46, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He didn't fight at the end. He wasn't fighting to save his life. He even says another passage that he, he freely laid down his life. No one took it from him. He freely laid it down, offered it up as a sacrifice. How about love? We see, again, love. Because we've been separated from our creator, we as human beings, we want to fill this craving for love with people, with other people. We seek it from others. So we refuse to love God, and instead we seek to fulfill love from others. And that leads us to do all kinds of crazy things. Try to control relationships. The amount of jealousy in our world. Wait a second, you can't spend that much time with that person because, wait, you love me. You love me more. I'm your BFFFFFF. <laughs> we get jealous. We manipulate people, trying to get them to love us. We're passive aggressive. It's amazing what we'll do. But also consider this, we also will stay in unhealthy relationships. Right? This is why some, both women and men, will be in an unhealthy relationship, an abusive relationship. And they recognize it's abusive, but they keep going back to it. Because they're understanding this is the only one, this is the only person who actually will somehow give them any sense of love. So much of our sin in relationships is based on this craving. Getting angry with people. Again, the passive aggressiveness, the distrust that we have, the jealousy that comes. But what does the Bible tell us? We can accept God's love by actually loving in return. 1 John 4, 18 and 21. He is love. And he has called us. If we're going to enjoy that love and accept that love, then we will love others first. This is the battle of too many marriages and friendships and families where love is about the other person loving me 
And I will only love them if they love me the way I want them to. What scripture tells us, if we want to love, we need to receive the love that God has given us and pass that on to others, and then we'll experience more and more of that love. Unconditional love from God. This is where we get satisfied, and even Jesus. It's interesting. Jesus didn't focus just on his family and his friends in order to find love. Love is with who he was with. My wife was talking about this week, actually about in her class. She's starting uh, teaching this week. Uh, woo, so exciting, so awesome. But she was talking about family with her kids. And of course, the kids, she's at a, a school where, you know, it's a behavioral school, a lot of difficult kids and difficult family situations. And some of her kids didn't like the idea that she was trying to say that their classroom was a family because their vision of family is really ugly. But this is exactly what Jesus does as well. Jesus' idea of family, he's redefining family. He says family is not just who you live with. Family is not just bio a, a biological thing. Family is those people that you love and they love you in return, right? The idea that family perspective needs to be different. So Jesus has this as well. But again, we find that satisfaction in God. Next is justice. Again, because of our separation from God, we have fear about justice, and so we strive to relieve that fear by trying to satisfy it with the things of this world. We seek human justice, and too often human justice is without mercy. These are, these, the sins that we see come out of this is judgmentalism, and again, we see this in the church too, right? Maybe especially in the church. I mean, certainly this is the, the, the kind of the label, the stereotype, if you will, of Christians in America, especially. We're all judgmental, right? Not filled with any kind of mercy. No, we just, you know, all we do is go around and tell everybody what all, you know, all they're doing wrong. The critical nature, right? But also within that is this hypocritical nature, right? You know, there's hypocrisy in that because none of us can be that perfect, right? And so there's hypocrisy there that comes out because we've got to try to hide our own sin so that we can continue to be judgmental of other people's sin, right? And so this is this, this reality, right? And this unforgiving spirit, unwillingness to forgive people when they've sinned against us. And then, of course, even for those that can't enjoy justice at all, they can become very apathetic and they just don't care anymore. But again, what does the Bible tell us? We receive God's justice as it's poured out on Jesus. If we want to enjoy justness, if we want to be determined to be just, be called just, we get that through Jesus. Jesus is the just one. And if we bow our knee to Jesus as Lord, then we will receive justness as well. So we are, uh, uh, John, and that, uh, excuse me, Romans 5, 8 and 9 kind of talk about this reality again, that, that, that we had uh, sinful nature that was imputed on us. We talked about this last week, but also we have righteousness that now is imputed on us when we bow our knee to Jesus. And even Jesus sought to be justified, not by himself, by his own actions, but by God. In John 8, 17 and 18, he says, hey, if I, just, if I give witness to myself that I'm the son of God, well, that's, you know, I mean, hey, that's what, it's true, but it, you know, that's, I don't have to lean on that only because I have a father in heaven who says, yes, this is my son. What a great truth, even if the world 
is accusing of us all kinds of evil things to know that our defense is not based on our ability to convince the world that we're not what they say we are, but that we just point to our Father. He knows. He knows what's true. And then next we see mercy as well. And this is another one of those things that we try to fulfill or satisfy on our own. We refuse God's mercy and instead expect that we're going to get a second chance every time. We expect people to always give us that second chance. And it leads to the sin of presumptuousness. We just presume that people are going to eat. We even presume on God. I think this is a horrible thing for Christians that say, oh, you know what? God will forgive me. It's okay. Oh. Presumption, self-pity. When we're striving for mercy. Oh, but you just don't understand. What was me? How horrible my life is. Lying. Begin to lie. No, I didn't really mean to do that. Yes, you did. I'm just sad because I got caught. So it leads to sin, but again, what does scripture teach us? It teaches us that to forgive so that we can also be forgiven by God. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. The Lord's Prayer. God help us to forgive those who trespass against us. If we forgive them, then God will forgive us. If we bow our knee to Jesus as Lord, then we get to experience this amazing freedom and then that freedom is meant to be passed on. Even Jesus sought forgiveness for those who put him on the cross. You remember Jesus' words, first words on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Finally, purpose. Again, we try to satisfy this on our own, use other people, use temporal means. We refuse God's house that he's offered us, refuse God's success, and instead we look to build our temporal homes here, our wealth. We seek to build our own names, and so we're driven by ambition and narcissism and envy of what other people have. We're striving to get all we can in this world, striving to get all the goodies, striving to have you know, all this, to, to do the things that I desire, to do the things that I have passion for, that those are the things that determine my direction and where I go. But what does scripture teach us? It teaches us clearly in Philippians 3, 8 to 11, as Paul says, that I may gain Christ. I give up everything else. Everything else is rubbish. Everything in this world doesn't matter. But if I can just have Christ... Jesus, again, focusing on his father, not the crowds. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's with his disciples praying before he goes to the cross. And what does he say? Not my purpose, not what I want, not the things that I'm passionate about, not the things that I want to do, but your will. See, our purpose is not our own. Our purpose is not something we just come up with. Our purpose is not something we conjure up. It's something that comes from Jesus. So we have all of these cravings satisfied in Jesus. They're not something we have to fight 
for or strive for. They're something that are offered to us by grace. If we will bow our knee to Jesus as Lord, then we can receive these things. Now, again, as Christians, we oftentimes will go back to these cravings and continue to live our lives the way we did before we found Jesus, trying to satisfy these cravings with the world. And so we need to continue to remind ourselves. But here's the great encouragement. If all of our sin, or at least mostly our sin, is grounded or inspired or motivated by these cravings that are God-given, that means that if we can just figure out what craving our sin is motivated by, we can go back and begin to do some heart work on that and then ask Jesus to satisfy this craving for us and to get our eyes off the world that we're trying, you know, whatever we're using the world to satisfy it instead. You see, because now instead of sin just being something out there that we do, we recognize, wait a second, there's a motivation for that sin. And the motivation, actually the craving is good. And, you know, it's good that I want to live forever. But how do I try to live forever? What am I doing? Who am I trying to destroy? If I am destroying others, if I'm in great competition, if I'm bullying others, if I'm trying to get power and control so that I can kind of protect my life and somehow, well, that's sinful, right? But if I understand, wait a second, it's in a good thing. It's, it's because I want to live forever. And I go, oh, wait, well, then that means I don't have to do that because if I just turn my eyes to Jesus, my life is secure. And now the fear will be dealt with. And without the fear, I don't have the motivation to sin to try to satisfy it. Because I recognize, no, it's satisfied. I get to live forever. The life of a Christian can be one that is filled with peace in regards to death. It can be filled with peace in regards to love, knowing that we're already loved. And when we see these areas where we're trying to manipulate others to love us, or we're stuck in, in, in unhealthy relationships, wait a second, I can let that go. I can let an unhealthy relationship go. Because my craving to be loved is satisfied. I'm not afraid of being alone. I'm not afraid of being away from that person anymore. God loves me. And so this is, a, I think, a great encouragement that recognize that even within our sinful things that we do, the sin that seems to you know, come out of us and the things that we're involved in that aren't from God, that we recognize that those things actually are founded in a craving that God has given us that is just not being satisfied in him. So God is an amazing God who doesn't just punish willy-nilly, doesn't just do it arbitrarily. He's purposeful about his punishments. And within those punishments, he is lined grace. And even the punishment of a sinful nature that continues to, to, to taunt us and to, and to, and to str- something we continue to struggle with our whole life, even in that, there is grace. Even in those sinful things, there's grace because God has given us internal cravings that we can defeat sin, not under our own power, but under his power when we recognize that he is the one, the only one that truly satisfies. All right, worship team, come on up. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. Uh, We thank you that uh, even your punishments are good. Even the sinful nature that we continue to wrestle with, Lord, that you have allowed that to be something that would prompt us to seek Jesus. So Lord, we thank you that you are not a God who is just seeking to destroy, that you are a God who still is motivated by love in all that you do. Even your justice is motivated by love and even your punishments 
are motivated by love. And Lord, thank you for this reality as well that, that perhaps a, a key part of us fighting this battle against sin today is about recognizing what that sin is trying to satisfy that only you can satisfy. Lord, I pray that you'd give us discernment as we seek and as we uh, ponder our sin this week, that we would be able to recognize what is motivating that sin, what fear is causing me to make those sinful decisions. And that, Lord, as we kind of get into that reality, then we can find true hope in you and recognizing that you truly satisfy. Lord, we ask that you would help us to recognize how important you are, that you are everything, that we would be able to see, say the same as Paul does in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and following. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 And God bless. Have a great day, and we will see you soon.